Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen Haupt, and I'm joined today by Robin Sertel, who's an abortion survivor. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And let's just jump right in. Do you mind sharing your story with our listeners? Certainly. So I'm the survivor of three failed saline infusion abortions. What that means is during the time that my mother was pregnant with me, I was the baby, and she tried to abort me three different times. A lot of times when people hear the term abortion survivor, they have no real place for that on their mental map. So they kind of scroll through this little mental menu of, oh, you must have had three abortions yourself. And so we have to tell people, no, I was the baby. <laughs> so that, that would be me. I was the baby. Uh, this year at the March for Life, which we're having this week here in D.C., we're celebrating that this is our very first post-row March for Life. And we are so, so thrilled about that. Praise God. During that very politically charged uh, climate, my mother found herself pregnant when Roe was first enacted. So I was born March 28, 1974. And during the time that Roe and Doe were first being fought for and won in the courts and all those things, um, my mother found herself a successful career woman. She was uh, leading the business department at Delcy Regional High School in Glassboro, New Jersey. She was happily married. My dad ran the vending department. So they each had a, a wonderful spot in the high school that they worked in. I remember as a kid, they, they had a lot of friends in the faculty. They had a, a nice little home, had cats and a dog. And so what we would perceive as, you know, kind of the typical American family, two school teachers, cat's dog, nice little home, everything is happy, except when my mom found herself pregnant, she was so focused on her career, and she really wasn't able to connect with other people the way that you and I connect, and we didn't know that for many years later. The idea of connecting with a baby and nurturing that child was just so foreign to her. She just was so focused on career that she went down the road of, hmm, I'm going to focus on my job. I'm not going to worry about this. This is just a clump of tissue. That's what they told me when I went to the doctor. This is not a baby yet. This is a choice. And so she went and had her very first saline infusion abortion. In that procedure, a deep needle was inserted through mom's tummy. It drew off a whole bunch of that life-giving amniotic fluid that was surrounding me in the womb. And then it replaced it with a toxic solution that was salty. It was meant to burn me to death. And normally in a saline infusion abortion, they would induce labor a couple days later. Mom would expel a dead baby and supposedly go on with life. Now, we know that there are mental, emotional, and physical traumas that impact mom with any abortion attempt. But we also found out that when mom went back to have labor-induced, I was still alive. So rather than expelling a dead baby, they inserted a second needle, drew off more of that life-giving amniotic fluid, repeated the entire procedure, sent her home with a fresh batch of that toxic solution inserted into the womb with me. So now I'm swimming in not one but two doses of that toxic solution. Obviously, the baby also gulps that down. So mm -hmm. my, my first meals were very salty. <laughs> I 
very horrible way to go through life is um, thinking about these things. But she went back, supposed to have labor-induced, and again, they found signs of life. So not once, not twice, but a third time, she went through that entire procedure. How I survived, we don't know, except by the grace of God. She went back to have labor-induced, and this time, they didn't know I was still alive. They did know it was very complicated. So I grew up in South Jersey. That's where my parents lived. The um, big hospitals were in Philly. So that's where you would go if you had any um, complications or any issues that really required a lot of intensive treatment. So they sent her to Philly. And from what my dad told me, as well as my grandmother and my mom's best friend at the time, they, they had no layette, they had no bag pack, they had no name picked out for me because they were fully expecting mom is going to go expel a dead baby. They're going to kind of patch her up and send her home. They get to the hospital the morning of March 28th in 1974, and the nurse comes out and asks for the pregnant lady. Well, the pregnant lady was my mom. She was so wrapped up in her career and in her image. She had a very beautiful figure. She was a beautiful lady who actually was the daughter of a model. So my Grammy did some modeling. Um, she actually ran a ladies finishing school in Bern, Germany before they came over to America. Wow. So I grew up with the, the grandmother who taught me how to sit properly and all the things that I have promptly forgotten, as you can tell if you're watching this video. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, mom kind of lived in the shadow of that, and she wasn't tall enough to be a model. In those days, you had to be a certain height, and we are petite, so that was off the table. But she was doing, from what I'm told, 50 sit-ups a day and had kept her figure to such an extent that when the nurse came out to call this pregnant lady, mom stood up, and the nurse kind of laughed at her and said, oh, no, honey, we want the pregnant lady. You are obviously not great with child. My dad was there with her driving and was ha had to explain, no, you know, she really is the pregnant lady. Wow. And so I always thought about what is that in your mind? If you had been pregnant and gone through abortions, do you still consider yourself pregnant before the baby is expelled? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. What do we call that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I always wondered what was going through her mind. But anyway, there's a thought for you for, for this morning. She goes back with the nurse, not looking like she's pregnant at all. As a matter of fact, her tummy was still flat. Wow. Um, and so they get her into the room, get her all comfortable. They induce. She expels me, and I come out very much alive. Much to her chagrin. This was not her plan. Dad, on the other hand, dad had lost his first wife and baby to a drunk driver in a car accident. Oh, my gosh. So he was absolutely thrilled. He wasn't on board with the abortions, but he didn't feel like he had a voice there. So when I was born, dad was pleading for me very much the way you would if you brought home a puppy and you're trying to convince your family, you know, can we keep it? Can we keep it? So that was dad, very excited. And as I'm told by my mom's best friend and my grandmother, there was a little bird who landed on the window ledge that morning. And so mom finally looked over, saw this little bird and said, fine, name it Robin Dawn. And that's my name. That's beautiful. Thank you.
Yeah. So I was not free from issues by any means. Those three injections and the lack of the amniotic fluid and everything had done a lot of damage. I spent many years going back and forth to Children's Hospital Philadelphia and the local hospital, a lot of time with a bunch of specialists. Uh, I was told I would never walk. I was told I would never eat solid food. I was told I would never have a normal life of any sort. And the doctors are interesting when you're an abortion survivor. Most other um, developmental disabilities and disease processes are explained to you with a lot of compassion by the doctors. And there's usually a group waiting where the doctor will say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. You've been diagnosed with X. And here's this group over here. These are the X fighters, and they've been fighting X for years, whether it's a certain type of cancer or a developmental disability or whatever it is. And so they'll kind of send you over and say, here, here's your tribe, you know. And so these people are going to work with you and they know what you're dealing with. But that was not the case for abortion survivors. I was told, oh, my gosh, wow, well, you know, it's great that you're here and everything, but this just doesn't happen. You're the only one. There is no group. And so, yeah, well, good luck with that. Tomorrow's not promised. We have no idea how this is going to impact you because this was all very new. And so I always thought I was the only one. Wow. That's very difficult. I believe it. That's That would be incredibly hard. Yeah. So imagine being told you have like stage four cancer, but you're the only one. And we have no idea what that's going to do. So, well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, that's... That's really hard to think about. Yeah. So thinking that I was alone and feeling rejected was very much a theme for most of my life. Um, being in and out of the hospital, I was actually pronounced dead at age nine. I was so sick. I had a very high fever for several days. It was 106 fever for four days. I was in and out of consciousness. And... Um, Actually, when I came to and the medical team were rallying around me and trying to get me stabilized, I remember hearing my mom and her mother just out of earshot. I'm guessing it was outside of the room, but no way to really know. And they're kind of arguing back and forth. And my Grammy is telling my mom, you know, Robin's really smart. It's on her medical record. She can read. She's going to know what's going on. You have to tell her. And that kind of piqued my curiosity. I kind of made a mental note of that, but I had no idea what she was talking about. So later after I'm stabilized, Grammy comes in and she says, you know, your mom doesn't want to tell you, but you're, you're going to know. The reason you're so sick, it's not a mystery. We do know what's going on. It's because your mother tried three times to abort you. She tried to burn you out with the saline. Well, at age nine, abortion is not like a you know, spelling a vocabulary word. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that really meant. It sounded important, but I was really sick at the time and I didn't have a grid for that. So I just kind of set it aside mentally. Didn't understand what that was going to mean at all. I go through my teenage years and my parents had already divorced. We didn't have a churched or a saved home. So the Lord was not a part of my life at that time. 
I had no relationship with him or anybody else who did. I didn't have some praying grandmother somewhere. I had a grandmother who was trying to figure out what was going on. That was for sure. But, but <laughs> she didn't have the Lord's help with that. And so my teenage years, um, I acted out and kind of went down some really dark paths and um, didn't really know how to uh, assimilate all of this information, how to integrate it. Get into my early 20s, I get married and um, get pregnant for my first child. And um, during that pregnancy, I really started to contemplate things and I remember people coming to me and saying, well, oh, you're pregnant, so you have choices. You can have an abortion or you can have a baby. And I didn't really parse through that very much except to say, no, I, I definitely don't want an abortion. Oh, my gosh, that did horrible things for me. My abortion was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to picture being the person telling you that. And they're like, wait a minute. Exactly. So it's a little goofy. But that kind of put me on the path of, of a lot of introspection. And um, during that time, I remember calling my mom. I hadn't spoken with her in 11 years. There had been a lot of abuse in the home. And so I yeah. spent my teenage years living with dad. Even though I was acting out, dad was very supportive um, Dad and I had a great relationship. So from the time I was little and in children's hospital, mm -hmm. um, Dad was always the one who would come to the hospital. He was always the one to visit. Fun fact, Children's Hospital Philadelphia had a McDonald's in the lobby. I don't know if it's still there, but I was rarely told I was able to eat solid food. I was usually given the liquids tray with the jello and the, the bouillon broth, and oh, it was awful. Dad would come up to my room and he'd always sneak me up a quarter pounder with cheese and french fries and have a coke in his hand <laughs> he'd have that in his briefcase <laughs> so d dad and i were pretty tight yeah. but um i called my mom for the first time in 11 years during my pregnancy with my oldest and i said i'm not sure why you've made the choices you have i don't agree with what you've you've done mm -hmm. but i want you to know i forgive you you don't owe me anything and I can tell you the atmosphere just totally shifted. She was very quiet. I was very quiet. And she finally said, would, would you like to get together? And I said, yeah. As a matter of fact, I want to let you know I, I'd like to get together, but um, pregnant with your granddaughter. You're about to be a grandmother. And um, if you could just wait a couple more months until after she's born, uh, I'd like you to meet her. And so we did that. And she met my daughter for the very first time. And she and my daughter were pretty close. That was that was neat. So it was kind of a, the beginning of healing in our relationship. So growing up with knowing that I was an abortion survivor uh, was interesting for me because I didn't really understand what that meant until I was a lot older. And even after I forgave my mom, our relationship was a little strained. Um, I Understandably. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I did forgive her and walk through as best I could, um, just bringing her as close as I could. We found out uh, as I was growing up that she had some mental illnesses. That's why she couldn't connect. But, um, you know, I like to think we did the best we could with what we had. When did you first find out that you weren't the first abortion survivor? Like you said, growing up, you felt like you were the only one because that's what people told you. When did you first find out that there were others? 
So fun fact, it was only about two years ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was almost 47 years old. So go from age nine, being told, to, well, 46, almost 47. I am at home. The world is kind of shut down because of COVID, spending way too much time in front of a screen on the internet. And I end up coming across the Abortion Survivors Network online. And I was very skeptical. I, I have trust issues, which clearly, I mean, not clearly, but like understandably. Yeah. <laughs> so trust issues galore. And so I see this Abortion Survivors Network and the first thoughts were really kind of dark. It was like, oh, who's trying to make money off of, you know, things like this? That's horrible. Why would you even come up with that? So I'm scrolling through and I'm looking at it and I see the pictures of Melissa Odin, our founder and director and other, a couple other survivors on there. And I'm very skeptical. She's gorgeous. <laughs> like, she, she is. You She's, would never know. Yeah. Beautiful lady. And same with you. Like you just, I remember her saying, I've heard her speak before and I remember her saying that you would just, you could pass people on the street who survived abortion and you would never know. Like sometimes you can see it, see it, but usually it's, very it's not true. what people picture. Yeah. It's yeah. very true. So I I looked at her picture, the other pictures there, and I'm going, I don't know. I don't think this is real. I think somebody's trying to make money off of something like this. And um, scroll down through, and there's a contact us page, and I'm like, uh, who's, who's data mining? You know, who's collecting information? I find in the fine print at the bottom, there's a phone number. I says, okay. I'm going to call this phone number and I'm going to get somebody who doesn't even speak English at some call center in some other country or whatever. And I, I called and I ended up connecting with Melissa and she says, hi, I'm Melissa Odin. And I says, hi, I'm Robin Sertel. And she says, I'm the survivor of a failed saline infusion abortion. And I says, I'm the survivor of three failed saline infusion abortions. Are you for real? <laughs> And I'll never forget just feeling shocked and stunned and explain to her, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for over 20 years now. I go out and I share my story, but I also shared the rest of my story of a lot of the abuse that was in the home from my mom and kind of coming out of that. And I, I shared my story in churches to try to bring people hope and um, walk people through forgiveness. I've always had a heart for forgiveness. So a lot of times when I share my story, I start right in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Um, and it's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Mm. Um, and I, I, I talk about the Lord's perspective on forgiveness and how uh, he doesn't want us to leave any debts outstanding and things like that. And, I, and I'm thinking about all this as I'm on the phone with her, and I'm thinking, wait, there are more? there are other people who have had to go through this. And I instantly just kind of went all back through the trauma and the drama of being in the hospital for years. And, um, you know, that what the doctors had told me and like, why did they not tell me that there were others? What would my life have been like if I had grown up with a support group of other survivors and we all could have rallied around each other, that would have been a whole different experience. Yeah. It's so important to have that. Yeah. So now we have the Abortion Survivors Network, and it's got to be so transformative for younger children who contact our network, 
who talk to our social workers and other survivors, now when you're nine years old or whatever age you are and your parents tell you, at least they can tell you, but hey, you're not alone. There are so many more other survivors. And we're just now starting to get a picture of how many more. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought there were maybe a handful of us. I was introduced to some uh, data from the CDC. Dr. Willard Cates in 1981 released a study uh, called the Dreaded Complication Series. It was posted in the Philadelphia Inquirer of all places. Oh, my gosh. And it said that he perceived that four to 500 babies survive abortion annually in the U.S. alone. Do the math, which I don't do math. Math, as far as I'm concerned, is mental abuse to humans. That's what <laughs> MATH stands for. I'm more of a reading and writing kind of a girl. But anyway, if you if you multiply that out, that means there are tens of thousands of us. That's what they released in 1981. I was six years old. And no one told you? No. I didn't read the Philadelphia Inquirer at age six. No. <laughs> right? And But unfortunately, neither did my doctor's. Or anybody else that was working with me. So I'm looking back at all this and I'm going, wow, yeah, I guess I do live under a rock somewhere. So it's time for me to, you know, pull the rock off and, you know, come out a little bit and share this so that other people have a chance to know. Because fun fact, most of the time when survivors share their story, other survivors will hear it. And worldwide, Almost all of us come saying, I thought I was the only one. We now have connected with over 600 survivors through the Abortion Survivors Network worldwide. And I have the, the absolute privilege of working with other survivors and helping them to learn how to craft their story and go out and share it. And we see every single time how healing that is because, of course, it eliminates shame when you can share your story. What we hear almost every time, though, is, I thought I was alone. Nobody told me. I thought I was the only one. That's so sad. Let's change that. Yeah. Why do you think it's important? I mean, obviously, you just touched on um, people who have survived abortions to be able to hear that so they know they're not alone. But why mm -hmm. do you think it's important for other people to hear this story, people who maybe didn't survive an abortion, to realize that there are people who have survived abortions out there? I think it's kind of obvious, but, like, what are your personal thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. So first of all, we need to change the narrative in our culture. Mm -hmm. And we need people to understand that it's babies who survive abortions. So a lot of times we use these words that, you know, gosh, when I went to Bible school, we, we were taught, if you don't understand a word, don't use it. You know, don't try to use the, the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic if it's not a word you've really studied and understood. Don't use Latin. Don't use this if you don't understand it. Find something you do understand and you can speak from that. A lot of uh, pro-choice people will use words that they don't understand. So let's move away from using words like zygote, <laughs> you know, please, embryo. Uh, let's, let's move away from using the word fetus. It just means little one. Mm -hmm. But they all mean a baby. It's just different stages. If we can come away from those words, what's kind of um, 
you know, they, they work with that narrative that says that you're you're not really a baby until some nebulous time in the future, and then they don't really have any understanding of why. Um, you know, I think it's important that we can help people to understand that babies survive abortions. And so when abortion survivors go out and speak and we share our story, it helps put a face on, you know, I am who was aborted. Not what, but who. Mm-hmm. And so I am the face of the, the aborted. I am the face of the preborn, the unborn. I was a baby. I am a human. So let's humanize abortion and help people to understand that we are not a clump of cells or tissue. We are babies. We are human. And I think when people hear that, it helps them readjust their focus. Uh, I've, I've had even medical doctors say, well, well, babies don't survive abortions. I had one tell me that he was going to take it off my medical record because he didn't believe in that. <laughs> right? I says, well, okay. So if I come in here with a broken leg and you don't believe in broken legs, are you going to take that off my record too? <laughs> you know, it's just, everything is so subjective anymore. <laughs> it's just silly. And I saw it just, I, I think it's fascinating how people try to deal with things. So I think as we get back to basics and that you hear babies survive abortions, Mm -hmm. it does away with that whole clump of cells, clump of tissue. It's not really a human being argument, if you will. And it helps people to understand that abortionists are human also. They're fallible people. And so certainly we want to walk in forgiveness towards them as they come out of the industry, right? Mm -hmm. We want to give them an opportunity to, um, you know, repent and and come away from all that, just as everyone else. They are human. Mm -hmm. And so to that, just like every other medical procedure, which is what they want us to believe it is, okay, I'll believe you. It's a medical procedure. It results in death. Every other medical procedure results in life, so I have a fundamental issue with that. But okay, I will give you that one. You want to call it a medical procedure? Every single medical procedure that a person goes and signs up for willingly, they have to sign off agreeing to terms and conditions, which include a list of potential negative outcomes. They have to give you the risks. They have to say, potentially, if I operate on your elbow, I could make things worse. Potentially, if I operate on your eyeball, you could go blind, whatever the case may be. I would love for Planned Parenthood to have to list on their potential outcomes and other abortionists, Mm -hmm. you know, your baby may live. Those simple words, your baby may live would change a lot of people's minds if they had to actually look at that and face that as a potential consequence. So I think as abortion survivors share their story, those potentials start to rise in the narrative Mm -hmm. and hopefully someday that can help change the narrative. So I have a quick question. I'm not sure you might know the answer to this um, because you're involved in the abortion survivors network, but do you know how many children survive abortion now? Because I believe saline abortions are in really done anymore in the United States. It was more in like the 70s and 80s, if I understand correctly. So do you know with the current methods of abortion, how many children survive approximately? Or if it's, yeah. (laughs) It's hard to get hard facts because they don't have to report. Okay. So what I do know, only 10 states out of our 50 states are required to report 
Okay. There is no federal law, mm-hmm. although we're working to change that. There was a born alive bill that just went through the House of Representatives this week. And it passed. So we're praying that it makes it through the Senate. We're going to have a fight there. So I would certainly mm-hmm. appreciate, you know, folks standing with us in prayer for that. But what this bill will do was, <laughs> should have been done ages ago. When a baby is born alive after an abortion attempt, there is no law that says that they are now considered a human being mm-hmm. with full rights. They have to be reported and cared for. Most babies born alive after abortion attempts are labeled as medical waste. They're murdered, killed in some way, shape, or form, either through neglect or outright murdered Mm -hmm. because the abortionist doesn't want the evidence that they're fallible. Mm. So instead of being evidence to be done away with, I want us to be reported and cared for, as we should be, as every baby should be. And that's what the law in Montana was about that failed this past November, right? That's that correct. The same. Yep. I was out sharing my story all over Montana this past fall. Yes. And so that that law was the same on the state level, basically. I mean, wording is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the federal level, we're trying to do the same thing. And so it's basically saying that if a child is born alive after a quote unquote failed, like the abortion procedure failed, which is a good thing, but yeah. it's weird terminology to use, then they're legally a human being and they need to be treated as such because they are. Yes, exactly. Because that's not a law yet. We Mm -hmm. don't have federal reporting, so we don't have good figures. What we do know is that, you know, according to the CDC's abortion surveillance arm in 1981, they reported four to 500 babies survive every year. Mm -hmm. Now, another data set that we're looking at and trying to figure out and, and it's it's interesting to look at. I've got three different forms. So one is the 81 release from Dr. Cates. Second one is Canadian numbers. Canada has to report. Interesting. Yeah. So are they identical to us? No, but they are most closely related to our healthcare system as far as other countries. Mm-hmm. And so identical, no. But if you take their numbers and you kind of look at their types of figures, that would put the figures more in the hundreds of thousands, where Kate's numbers from the CDC, that puts numbers in the tens of thousands. Wow. Big difference. Yeah. I can tell you there are a lot. I can tell you that, you know, we meet new survivors all the time. They, so people, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like my point was like people are surviving more than just the saline ones. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. I, so last last group of figures is actually from Planned Parenthood's surveillance arm, which is the Guttmacher Institute. Mm-hmm. They're reporting that today's abortions are mostly done by the chemical abortion, so mm-hmm. the pill. Yeah. And the pill is very fallible, up to 10%. They're saying that 54% of all abortions these days are done chemically. So this is not just pill reversal. That's Mm -hmm. before pill reversal. That's just those that fail. So when we look at those numbers, that's an awful lot. That's an awful lot. Now, obviously, those pills are going out. I mean, there, there are so few requirements they're very loose. So it's very hard to get a good firm figure on how many abortions are happening annually. We don't really know. They don't want to report. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easier to get an abortion than an aspirin in a school, in a public school. 
that's really sick. It's easier to deal with a headache, you know, or excuse me, it's easier to kill your baby and not have to tell mom and dad than it is to deal with a headache. That's crazy. It is. So most of our states in in the U.S. don't have reporting requirements. We have 10. And of those 10, the requirements and what they report and everything and what they even classify as a human being are all very, very different. So it's challenging because they haven't required things that would be necessary to get good numbers. All I know is when I go out and I share my story, other people hear it and they come and they say, me too, I'm a survivor too. And that happens for all of our survivors. When we send out big news pieces, such as on Fox News or Newsmax or whatever, we get a lot of survivors because a lot of survivors have seen a bigger story. So we always say, please share this with your friends, not just so that we can get our name out there, but so other survivors don't have to suffer alone. They don't have to feel like they were the only one. Has it been healing being able to connect with a community of people who went through similar things as you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Very much so. Very much so. I love our survivor community. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to our listeners today? You know, I would just like to share that, you know, on behalf of abortion survivors, if you are someone who has lost a child to abortion, there is forgiveness for you. And so we all have come to the table with a radical uh, love for moms who have lost children to abortion, not just our own moms, but, you know, other moms too, who have come and said, you know, I've had one, three, five, however many abortions. I don't feel like I can forgive myself. And so I just always want to come back to there is forgiveness available for you in Christ. So I just want to release forgiveness to those who have had abortions. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so great to have you on and to hear your story. And thank you for sharing it. Thank you for having that courage to be able to tell people, like share with them and help them find forgiveness. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. And to all of our listeners, please remember to like, follow, and subscribe. Keep listening on YouTube, Rumble, and any of our audio platforms. Thank you. And keep on living the culture of life. God bless. 